old school. That's great. Great prayer for us. As we begin, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So years ago, uh, when I was a youth pastor here, I took a group of our upperclassmen on a trip to New Hampshire uh, to visit one of our covenant camps that's there. And one of the things they tell you when you go to this camp is you have to climb Mount Monadnock, Mount Monadnock, central New Hampshire. They made it sound like it was, uh, wasn't much of a hike, that we would really enjoy it. So I didn't prepare the students super well. Um, I know that some of them were wearing flip-flops, as I remember it. There was someone who was in a sundress and flip-flops. So yeah, not exactly hiking attire. The hike started simply enough. A wide passageway through a really beautiful forest. Group morale was pretty high. People were singing and playing games. And after about a half hour, we passed a group that was on their way down. And one of our students said, hey, are, are we close to the top yet? And the reply came, oh, sure, it's right around the corner. And I knew that something was up when they were laughing as they were going the other direction. And when we turned the corner, what greeted us was a view of a narrowing path of switchbacks that led to a mount of massive glacial rocks that we would have to climb if we wanted to make it to the top. So what did I do? I gathered our group together. I gave them a, a, a rousing pep talk. I apologized to the kids that were in flip-flops. And we gathered our strength, and we set out to conquer this mountain, even if we weren't very prepared. If you've been reading along with us in the Gospel of Mark, you might have the same sort of feeling right about now. Thus far, the, the road has been fairly wide as we've been moving through the Gospel of Mark. Even though we've been moving fairly quickly, it's been somewhat easy, easy to understand. The responses of the disciples are fairly easy to understand. Well, this is a turning point in the book, Mark chapter 9. We're going to be here for a couple weeks because things change in the Gospel of Mark in the ninth chapter. After our text from last Sunday with Jesus walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee, he heads north to what is now known as the Golan Heights, to the foothills of Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak in Israel, snow-capped mountain. And here Jesus, at this mountain, leaves nine of his disciples at the base of the mountain, and he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, sort of his inner ring, up the mountain where he is transfigured that's why we call it the mount of transfiguration he's transfigured before them we don't know exactly what that means but there is a radiance he shows them the fullness of his glory Moses and Elijah show up in this incredible affirmation of Jesus being who he says he is the son of God and as he descends the mountain things change the focus of his ministry changes the road now points squarely to Jerusalem up, now, it's, up until now, it's been fairly easy for the disciples to follow Jesus and to understand what he's saying, but now things are going to become a lot more difficult. And as we journey, I think they'll become more difficult for us too. So I wanted to, I'd like to invite you to stand this morning as we read this text. It's from Mark chapter 9. As we face this difficult hill that we're going to be climbing through this Lenten season upcoming, starting next Sunday, actually starting this Wednesday, let's hear about what happened when Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, okay? Jesus and his three disciples coming down. This is the story from Mark 9. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and some scribes were arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. 
And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered them, you faithless generation. How much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you're able to do anything, Jesus, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you're able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, the boy's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he was able to stand. Now when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out, Jesus? And he said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. So as we've said numerous times in this sermon series on the Gospel of Mark called Amazed and Afraid, the whole point of this gospel is that we would learn what it means to follow Jesus by putting ourselves in the shoes of these disciples who followed him bodily on earth, these followers of Jesus. And so I want to talk about following Jesus this morning. It's my favorite thing to talk about. But I, as I think about following Jesus in this season with this text in our minds, I I need to confess that I've been deeply burdened this winter with all the obstacles that we have to really following Jesus right now. It is so great that you are all here, but even, don't you feel like the last three weekends, it's like, how cold and snowy could it be right on Sunday morning? This is crazy, right? I mean, the pandemic is already keeping us apart from one another. There are just so many obstacles. And this season causes us to spend less and less time with people, more time online, on our phones, in front of cable news, which causes us to be more polarized and siloed, which makes us suspicious and contemptuous and down and depressed and anxious and undisciplined, filling our homes and our brains with content upon content, but not really reading our Bibles. That's actually a stat, by the way. Numerous studies have shown that after the first month of the pandemic, Bible reading, prayer practices, spiritual disciplines in general are way down across the board, while social media and phone usage and screen usage and cable news are way, way up. And then we've got these competing ideologies, too, when we're trying to follow Jesus, these ideologies that are in our face all the time, things that can be good, that that fight for way more of our heart space and brain space and hope space than they deserve, things like politics and various causes and, and social and economic and racial justice, and we're made to feel like this, if these things aren't our one burning passion, then we don't really care about them at all. And you couple that with everything I'm hearing from younger generations who feel immense pressure to to keep their Christian faith and association with the church hidden from their peers for fear of being judged or labeled or canceled. I just confess that I'm burdened. 
We have a lot against us when it comes to following Jesus. For me, this kind of stuff can become suffocating because it's my job to follow Jesus with every part of my life and every fiber of my being and then encourage you through the ministries of this church to do the same because I still believe that Jesus is the true, abundant life. That's who he is. But man, the road is getting more narrow. The switchbacks are getting steeper. It's getting harder. It's getting harder. I hope you feel some of that with me. As I study this text, and realize, I realize that the switchbacks and the, and the sheer rock face that I've been looking at when it comes to following Jesus, and that, that can be such a suffocating thing, those are actually addressed knowingly and lovingly in this passage, the account of Jesus coming down from the mountain. There are three really striking phrases in this text. I bet they sort of struck you when I read them. And I want to walk through these three phrases because I think they offer us an opportunity to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who followed Jesus bodily on earth and go, what would my response be on the path that is getting narrower as we seek to follow Jesus? So three phrases. The first one's this, verse 19. Jesus says, you unbelieving generation. Did that catch anybody off guard when I read it? It doesn't really sound like words that we've heard from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark so far. How much longer do I have to be with you and put up with you people? As Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he realizes quickly that there's a problem with the disciples. We know from earlier in Mark's Gospel that they have already been sent out without Jesus' presence with them, right? Bodily presence with them. And they've actually been able to cast out demons already. They've done this. They've been successful. But there was one in this town that they could not cast out, a boy who was rendered mute and, and by a spirit that caused him so much harm. Such a gut-wrenching story. The disciples are stymied, and, and this father of the boy approaches Jesus to communicate to him that the disciples were unable to help his son. Why weren't they able to help? And the disciples can't handle this task. The crowd is getting impatient with them. And this incident makes Jesus sort of reflect on how bad things are. He's looking over this whole scene, I think, and he speaks these words out of exasperation. You unbelieving generation. He surveys this upset crowd and the upset disciples, and he says, whatever it is that's going on here, this is not real true faith. This is messed up. He's come down from this spiritual high on Mount Hermon, and now he's in sorrow over what he's seeing. I need to stop here and make a connection with you. There have been numerous connections with the Old Testament character Moses that we pointed out earlier in uh, the Gospel of Mark throughout the sermon series. And here's an obvious one. So Jesus was just on this mountain. He was transfigured. He showed his glory to the disciples. And who, remember who showed up? Elijah and Moses, right? Moses actually showed up. We don't exactly know what that means, but he showed up. Well, Moses actually had an experience on top of a mountain seeing the glory of God as well. He went up to Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. He got a glimpse of the glory of God. He received the Ten Commandments and had this ecstatic experience. There's a lot of similarities. But what was going on down below the mountain at this time? Just a couple verses from Exodus 32, let me read. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down the mountain, they were impatient with him, the people gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. We're not sure what he's doing up there. And Aaron said, Take off your gold rings, your necklaces, your earrings. And, and he melted them down, and he made them into a golden calf. And he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And Aaron built an altar before it 
and made a proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a festival of the Lord. And they rose early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of well-being to these golden calves. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to revel, to party. And then Moses comes down the mountain carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and the back, tablets that were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved upon the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, this is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, this is not the sound made by victors nor by losers. It is the sound of revelers, of drunkards that I hear. And as soon as they came near the camp, they saw the calf and they saw the reveling and they saw the dancing and Moses' anger burned hot. Yeah, I would think so, right? And he threw the tablets from his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain and he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the Israelites drink it. Now, Jesus doesn't respond exactly the same way as Moses. There is no forced, uh, idle water drinking, right? But the reaction that he has is an allusion to the story of Moses as well. Just like Moses, he had to be saying, man, I've only been gone a short little while and everything has fallen apart here? The disciples can't do what I've empowered them to do? And and I'm supposed to be on this narrowing path to Jerusalem and, and I'm starting this journey disappointed? Here's a lesson for us in this as we put these stories together. A lesson from this phrase, you unbelieving generation. Journeying with Jesus is demanding. Hard work. And Jesus expects a lot of us. Journeying with Jesus is demanding hard work, and Jesus expects a lot of us. If you were ever told that once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that life just gets easier and easier, or that you don't really have to work at it anymore, or that following Jesus just, gets, just becomes like, like a summer's day over time, or Jesus doesn't really care what you do as long as you have belief in him, I'm sorry, those things are not true. Jesus cares a ton. He cares a ton. I feel that burden that I was talking about earlier as I, as I look at the Western church right now, and I feel like Jesus must look sometimes at, 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 at people who call Jesus their, their Savior and Lord in the church and go, man, how much longer do I have to put up with this? Cultural compromise and rampant idolatry and Christian leaders behaving poorly and and unholy syncretism of politics and power and faith and depraved sexual ethics. I mean, we're not any better than those Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. We're really not. That drunken Baal-worshipping people. No wonder Jesus is full of sorrow. But, but, just as Moses mediated between God and his people, go read it, Exodus 32, sparing them from destruction, Jesus does the same in his very body as the Son of God. He does not write these people off. He doesn't leave them to their own devices. He doesn't go, i got to start over with another group of 12 disciples. These ones are bad. He feels their sorrow. He enters into their midst and their problems and their illnesses and, and their lives and does what only Jesus can do. He's with them. He's gracious. He's merciful. Second striking phrase that comes in this passage is from the father of this boy who is at the center of the story. The one who says in verse 
24, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a pretty striking phrase. Maybe that stood out to you as you were hearing it. The father represents a turn in Mark's gospel. Up until this point, people were coming to Jesus with a relatively easy faith, right? They touch him and they're healed. He speaks to them and they understand, they're amazed. It's pretty simple. But for this man, faith is hard. Faith is hard for him. After the disciples are unable to heal his son, he is uncertain of if Jesus was able to do so. He's not sure if Jesus is going to be able to do it. He even says to him, you know, if you're able, Jesus, help me out. And Jesus rebukes him. I'm never sure exactly how to read this, but I think it's something like this. If I'm able, right? Are you really asking if I'm able? Just believe and this can happen. And this is where the man blurts out, I believe, help my unbelief. These words are often quoted as an ideal prayer for the person caught between faith and doubt, that space of of half-belief and lack of assurance. His words are a messy mixture of despair and trust, and I think that many of us can relate to that in our own prayer lives as well. But here's what we learned from this phrase. Even in the midst of doubts, we need to lead with faith. When I was doing my hospital chaplaincy, I worked with a, with a fellow Christian student chaplain who, who called himself a serial doubter. He led with his doubts. This was his absolute favorite verse in the Bible. He often used it in chapel services. He doubted kind of everything. Jesus' miracles, the authenticity of the Bible, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, even the resurrection. But he loved this verse because he's like, see, Jesus honors the doubters. He doesn't cast them away. He honors the doubters, and he still chose to heal his son, right? Now, the more that I've studied this, that's true, but I think my coworker was totally wrong in his read of this father because I don't really think this proclamation of faith is about doubt much at all. In fact, both of the clauses that this man uses are radical affirmations of faith. Think about it. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe is a conscious decision, right? Despite having wavering feelings to step out in faith, I believe that you can do what you say you can do. And then he says, help my unbelief. And he's recognizing his own humanity is still weak and only the power of God is going to allow him to have sufficient faith. So the second statement there, help my unbelief, is very much an act of faith, calling on God to increase his faith. So if you're someone who's a serial doubter, even if you just lean towards doubt when it comes to matters of faith, Jesus, God, let this man be your guide, this father, because he doesn't gloss over his doubts. He doesn't pretend like they're not there, but he sure does not lead with them. He doesn't lead with them. I think it's important because if you're someone who leads with your doubts, the narrowing path of Jesus, of following Jesus, is going to be a road that is going to be very, very difficult for you to stay on. So instead, let me encourage you to own your doubts, to speak them to Jesus, but to lead with faith. And if you're like, I don't really know how to do that, you can literally just quote this man. It's a perfect quote for you. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The third phrase is at the end of this passage, verse 29. Jesus retreats with his disciples to an interior space, and they open up. Why couldn't we do it? What happened, Jesus? We were able to do this before. Why can't we do it now? And Jesus replies, this kind can only come out through prayer. 
Now, this is sort of a puzzling response that we need to unpack a little bit. Maybe you were a little surprised when Jesus responded in this way. Uh, What does prayer have to do with casting out demons? I mean, does this mean that the disciples prayed the wrong prayers or didn't pray enough? Does it mean that some demons require prayer and some don't? No, I don't think it's any of these things. Because prayer, let me remind you, is not the words that we say. It's not just a general sort of communication with God. Prayer is the essential connection with God as the life source of our very lives. It's the way that we stay connected to the source of our lives. So I don't think that the disciples prayed the wrong prayer, said the wrong words, or didn't pray hard enough. Here's what I think. I think they uh, got a little impatient and got undisciplined waiting for Jesus. They became disconnected from Jesus. I think the disciples were beginning to think that their authority to do these miracles actually came from their own status as Jesus' disciples or the techniques that they learned from him. I mean, they had cast out demons before, so why shouldn't it work again? Well, they forgot that their power didn't come from them. It came from Jesus. How do they tap into that power? Through connection with him, through prayer. These disciples are heading up this winding, narrow pathway to Jerusalem, and and a casual, loose, disconnected relationship with Jesus is simply not going to cut it. They cannot rely on a status or things that have worked in the past. They have to stay connected dynamically to Jesus. In In other words, Jesus is saying, this kind can only come out if you stay vitally connected to me on a daily basis. The lesson in this verse is this. If we don't stay connected to Jesus through prayer, we're not going to be able to follow him where he's going. It's just going to be too hard. (laughs) I will often hear people say, you know, my prayer life is sort of stale for me. Now, certainly not every single prayer experience needs to be an amazing ecstatic experience. In fact, much of prayer is sort of unspectacular and normal. But if our prayers are stale, that's on us. That's not on God. God didn't get stale. So switch it up. Try a different place. Try a different time. Try a different posture of prayer. Try introducing scripture or or journaling or prayer partners. Fight for that connection with Jesus, the source of our power to even follow him. The practices that you've used in the past may have worked before. They might not work as well now to stay connected with him because staying connected with Jesus is a dynamic reality. It takes intention and attention. If, If we want to do as Jesus did, live as he lived, follow him, be his hands and feet, it's only going to happen through intentional connection with him through prayer. Now, if you don't know where to start, let me just challenge you, something simple. If you're not already doing it, 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day, you don't have to say any perfect words. You just have to find a space for 10 minutes that you spend with God in his presence, under his care, listening to him, opening your heart up to him, sharing your life with him, seeking connection with him. Start with 10 minutes. See what God does with 10 minutes. If you're not already doing that, do it. Start today. As we continue to journey in Mark's gospel, it becomes harder. Spoiler alert, you read the rest of Mark, it becomes harder. And that's a lesson in itself for us because following Jesus is hard. It demands so much from us. When we learn what it means to follow Jesus, we're actually given harder tasks, which are going to demand more courage and more faith and more spiritual energy and more connection to God. Now, some of you are going like, man, this is a downer. Why would I do such a hard thing, by the way? If things are just hard, why would I do it? Why would I do it? More on that next week, so I'm going to make you come back. But the short answer is, 
That's where Jesus is headed. And if you want to be with him, you need to go there too. Where did we get the idea that following Jesus would be a nice summer walk through the woods on a broad path? No, following Jesus is hard work. And the path in front of us, it gets more narrow. We're in a world right now where it's hard to follow Jesus, where it's increasingly countercultural to hold to an orthodox Christian faith, a conviction that, that there is such a thing as absolute truth, that there's a moral good that comes from this ancient book called the Bible, that there are God-ordered standards for sexuality and morality, that, that people should be forgiven rather than canceled, that it's okay to be slow to speak, that enemies should be cared for and prayed for. The path to following Jesus is hard. So with that being true, what encouragement, what consolation can I give you from this text? The first I would tell you is that if following Jesus feels hard and demanding, you're on the right track. You're where Jesus is. That if you're wearing flip-flops and a sundress and you have doubts if you can make it or not, you move forward in faith and you say, Jesus, I believe, help me where I don't believe, help me with this climb. I want to encourage you that you have the opportunities to stay, to stay tapped into the very power of God for this arduous task. And you can do so through prayer. So my encouragement this morning is really simple. Get serious about following Jesus because when we follow Jesus, I know it's hard, but when we follow Jesus, we get to experience things that are only possible through him. True healing, true miracles, true freedom, true peace, true change. And it's worth it. Because those things cannot be found, cannot truly be found apart from Jesus. It was never intended to be easy. But that's where Jesus is going. And he's worth every step of the journey. As you can imagine, the view from the top of the mountain was pretty amazing. As grueling as the journey was. So too is life with Jesus. If we will but, if we will but set out and follow him. I want to close with a prayer this morning. Put it up on the screen, Caleb. You can put the first slide up. You can just see this is an opportunity for us to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Both of them are affirmations of faith. Lord, I believe. Lord, there are parts of me where I need your help. And I believe that you can help me. As we seek to follow Jesus, it's good for us as we head into the Lenten season starting this week for us to tell Jesus what we believe about him and then ask for his help. We need one another for the journey. So I'm going to invite you, if you're so willing, to, to stand with me. And I'd like to say this prayer together. You can say all these words with me. If, if you're not ready, no, there's never any coercion to say words that aren't in your heart. You can just listen. But I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. As we say to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what I believe. Now help me, Lord. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, I believe that you are the only true way to freedom in my life. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, 
I believe that you are the only true way to healing in my life. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I believe that you are the only true power to bring change in my life. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I believe that you are the only way to peace. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I am willing to follow you. May it be so.